Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, an annual report sheds light on buying versus renting in Minnesota. A local radio personality previews the upcoming Miracle on Ice fantasy camp in Lake Placid, and the Ice Palace returns to St. Paul. But first... Governor Mark Dayton this week rolled out an aggressive $1.5 billion bonding proposal for state public works projects. Governor Dayton's public works proposal would create an estimated 22,950 jobs and it would support statewide economic growth. State Management and Budget Commissioner Myron Franz. Eminence Bill Werner is here with details of the governor's plan. Scott, Governor Dayton's plan is heavily weighted toward current infrastructure. Over one quarter of the bonding money, $430 million, would go to repair existing buildings at the University of Minnesota and state colleges and universities. There would be $130 million for preserving existing natural resources infrastructure, $167 million for water and sewer treatment systems, $100 million to preserve and expand affordable housing. U of M President Eric Kaler says this time they made a conscious decision to focus on renewal. You look at Pillsbury, you look at our projects in greater Minnesota, you look at Glensheen, all of those really have a common theme uh, of renewal. The idea of a, of a new bright shiny object, if you will, is simply not as attractive right now as a prudent investment. Minnesota's state colleges and universities, in addition to money for repairing aging buildings, would get $63 million for building upgrades under the governor's plan. Interim Chancellor Devinder Malhotra says... 15 major capital projects on Minnesota state campuses in nearly every region of our state Projects that are designed to provide a much-needed expansion of our educational and training programs. Republicans say Governor Dayton's $1.5 billion figure for the bonding bill is too large. House Capital Investment Committee Chairman Dean Erdahl from Grove City. We could look at maybe around $800 million. You know, certainly could be higher or lower, but you know, as, a, you know, as, as a point to consider. Uh, so we're, we're considerably less than what the governor is proposing. Um, now, you know, certainly the needs are there. Uh, there were requests of around $4 billion in the last uh, bonding cycle, and, and we did a bill at about a billion dollars. Uh, so we know that there are, there are needs, there are requests uh, that are unmet and still out there. Uh, but we're looking at a bill, I think it'll be heavy on infrastructure once again. Um, the governor uh, has put uh, his spending mostly into uh, uh, state buildings in U of M and, and uh, Minnesota State. Uh, that's uh, the vast majority of his spending. And we'll be in agreement on some of those areas. The dollar amount aside, I understand that you are a part on that. What do you think about the balance of asset preservation versus new projects, uh, shiny new stuff, I guess? Uh, well, I, I think uh, it, it, asset preservation is certainly uh, a very important part of a bonding bill. Yeah. I, I won't assign a percentage to it, uh, but uh, it, it should have a, uh, a large part of the bill. I think we have some agreement with the governor's office on the types of things that need to be done. Uh, it'll just come down to how many of them can we do? How can we prioritize them this year? 
The Coalition of Greater Minnesota Cities is giving thumbs up to the governor's bonding proposal that includes $167 million for clean water infrastructure. Granite Falls Mayor Dave Smigluski says it's a good start, but he warns if that number is reduced in negotiations with the legislature. How do we possibly take care of of, uh, aging sewers, aging water lines, aging treatment plants? Cities can't afford to do everything themselves. Officials in Montevideo and Bemidji questioned this week why there's no money in the governor's bonding bill for a new veterans home in those communities which are vying for it, along with Preston. State Representative Tim Miller from Prinsburg says it's hard to believe the governor would rather spend $35 million on the Minnesota Zoo. The governor has come forward with an incredibly large number, $1.5 billion bonding. You think that he could do something to support those people that served us so well. These were our men and women who are watchmen on the wall protecting us. And in their final years, it's time that we serve them back. Management and Budget Commissioner Myron Franz responds, the governor is looking for consensus on a new veteran's home. We believe that if the legislative people can come to an agreement on the next phase and the location, that we can get moving uh, toward uh, adding another home, but it's just not ready at this particular time. Senator Dave Senjum's bonding committee heard a pitch for the Veterans Home Wednesday from officials in Bemidji. It'll be a hard decision. These are pretty evenly matched projects across Minnesota, so uh, I have no idea at this point uh, where it might go, but we've got a couple months to figure it out. Senjum says he believes the legislature will authorize funding for another Veterans Home. In my opinion, I think we're going we're gonna to do one. It's just a matter of... You know, the the difficult thing will be deciding where. Also this week, Minnesota found out it is not in the running for Amazon's second corporate headquarters, not making it into the top 20 on that company's shortlist. Dayton administration has not released details of the state's proposal, but it did not include subsidies specifically for Amazon. Employment and Economic Development Commissioner Sean Tara Hardy does say... We had a strong proposal. I won't look at it from a standpoint of disappointment. It's keep doing the work. Keep making those investments. Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka says... I'm disappointed but not surprised. Uh, You know, I knew that our tax structure for businesses, corporate tax, income tax, property tax, were all high, and we are a highly regulated state more than average. And so those are the two factors that, for most businesses, they're going to weigh heavily. And, uh, you know, the fact that we didn't make the top 20 should underscore the fact that we should be looking seriously at improving. Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. What's more affordable, buying or renting? MN's Tasha Radel takes an in-depth look at the Adam Data Solutions Annual Buy versus Rent Report for 2018. Joining me now is Darren Bloomquist, Senior Vice President of Communications with Adam Data Solutions. Welcome, Darren. I understand you folks collected data from nearly 450 counties across the country to begin analyzing 2018 rental data. I understand the units were three-bedroom properties, and then you're comparing them to the median home prices. Were there any common themes with all the data? Well, the general theme that we're seeing this year with this data, and this is something we've looked at in past years, is is we're really seeing the the buy versus rent calculus shift in favor of renting. 
uh, although nationwide, in the majority of markets, when you look at it, just the number of markets, slightly over 50%, 54%, are, it's more affordable to buy than it is to rent. However, if you look at it population-wise, the, the percentage of the population that lives in markets where it's more affordable to rent rather than buy is now over, well over 50%. It's actually at 64% of the population of those counties uh, nationwide uh, lives in markets where it's more affordable to rent than to buy. And, and that really is, um, is a shift, uh, but it, it's a result of, of rapidly rising home prices over the last five years during this housing boom that we're experiencing. And, um, and even though rents may not always be extremely affordable, in a growing number of areas, they're, they're actually more affordable than, than home, home prices because of um, that rapid rise. We've seen really a, over seven, nationwide a 70% increase in median home prices over the last five years. And then, you know, looking, did we look at wages at all, if we can keep up with what the, the prices are, I guess, what the, with the prices? Yeah. yeah, that's an important component of this. We looked at wages from the Bureau of Labor Statistics in all these counties, and that's how we, uh, we determine the percentage of income needed to either buy or rent, and that tells us whether it's more affordable to buy or rent. And uh, the wages are not keeping up with, in most areas, they're not keeping up with um, with prices, and they're not keeping up even with rents, even though rents are more affordable in many areas. Um, in in 60% of the markets, wages are being outpaced by rents. Rents are rising faster than wages over the past um, pa- over the past year, uh, and and of course, uh, wages are also being outpaced by home prices. And so, this is what's leading to really the affordability crunch. On both sides, you know, for housing, whether you're renting or or buying, in an increasing number of areas, it's becoming highly unaffordable to to pay for housing, um, and uh, that that sluggish wage growth um, during this uh, recovery is is contributing to that. And you know, I don't know um, if you looked at any counties in here or here in Minnesota, but if if you did, are we? I guess is it is it holding true here too, where renting is more affordable than buying? Yeah, what we saw if we look at across Minnesota, the Minnesota counties that we looked at, um, which there were ten of them, uh, fifty percent. So right, fifty percent. It was more affordable to rent than to buy. And and you know if we look at it by population, the most populous counties it's now more affordable to rent than to buy, uh, Hennepin being the, the top one, um, where it's, it's more affordable to rent to buy, than to buy. It's, it's, it's fairly close. We're showing 31% of wages to rent a three-bedroom property in Hennepin County versus about 34% of wages to buy a home. Um, but uh, home prices over the past year have gone up 4% in, in Hennepin County, whereas uh, rents have only gone up 1%. These are average rents, of course. So that's helping to keep the, the rent um, slightly more affordable than, than buying a home. And Darren, did you look at any smaller counties in Minnesota, like in the, the, the non-metro area, or did you focus primarily in the Twin Cities metro? Um, the only county outside of the metro area that, that kind of met, we, we did keep it to larger counties where there was the rental data available. Um, the only county outside of the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area 
uh, was Duluth or in Duluth, um, St. Louis County uh, in Duluth, and that one um, it was actually more affordable to buy uh, there than to rent, and that's kind of the typical theme we see. I mean, even within the metro area, Minneapolis-St. Paul, if you look at some of the smaller counties in terms of population, those tend to be where it's more affordable to buy. Um, places like uh, Wright County, Sherburne County, um, Anoka County, uh, which is actually a little bit larger, but th those are uh, the ones where it's more affordable to buy than to rent still, um, as home prices have not risen as much there as some of the more central counties, and it really ties back to jobs and wages, and, and the places where wages are rising and there are more jobs tend to be more in the population centers, um, and so that's where we see more upward pressure on home prices, which then in turn <laughs> makes uh, uh, makes buying a home less affordable and renting sometimes becomes then more affordable than buying in, in those uh, those areas that have better access to jobs. Thanks again to my guest, Darren Bloomquist, Senior Vice President of Communications with Adam Data Solutions. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. The Miracle on Ice is a moment many of us who were alive in 1980 will never forget, and a moment that lives on even for those who weren't around to see it back then. For fans who want to relive that magical moment, there's a Miracle on Ice fantasy camp at Lake Placid, New York, the site of the 1980 Olympics. Minnesota radio personality and hockey fanatic Paul Fletcher is attending this year, and I chatted with him about this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. A bit of backstory, I grew up here in Minnesota, learned to skate when I'm three. My dad is from Roseau, Minnesota, which Warroad claims to be hockey town, uh, Minnesota, but we all, well, everybody in Roseau knows it's really Roseau. Um, <laughs> and so uh, Neil Broughton is from Roseau. Um, Dave Christian's from Warroad. There's a very rich hockey history in Roseau throughout the state of Minnesota, and I was um, brought into it immediately. And so uh, that doesn't get any bigger to me as far as sports moments go than the Miracle on Ice in 1980. And um, through a great charity, the Herb Brooks Foundation, which I've done some work through, I have been uh, bestowed the absolutely unbelievable opportunity to go take part in the Miracle on Ice fantasy camp in late March at Lake Placid. And that is what it sounds like the uh, the Miracle on Ice Fantasy Camp, but give me a few details on what actually takes place at the Fantasy Camp. To me, it's beyond that even. You know, a <laughs> lot of times I, I, I've seen these Fantasy Camps start popping up for various um, for various teams or, or occasions or whatever, and it's kind of like, yeah, that's cool, but that'd be really expensive. This is truly <laughs> a mind-blowing Fantasy Camp. Um, you've got very tangible items like being outfitted from head to toe, with replica gear from the 80 team. Socks, uh, <laughs> hockey socks, breezers, uh, home and away jerseys, uh, helmet gloves, all of that, which is, you know, it's very costly. Hockey equipment is not cheap. That on its own seems pretty cool. Yeah, pretty amazing. But then there's intangibles of 
I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 16 of the 20 some guys will actually be there from the team. And it's not like a meet and greet where you come in and, you know, you, you meet Neil Broughton and you meet, you know, uh, Mike Ruzioni, who scored the game winner against Russia. And then you go play some hockey and then you leave. They integrate you into their team. Like from what I've been told, all of the campers basically become an extension of the team. And you're all one giant, like 60 person or 80 person team rather than just their 20. Um, so that's pretty unbelievable. Some of them, the ones that can still skate play, uh, the ones that don't coach, yeah. uh, they're all very involved with the whole process. Uh, perhaps the biggest intangible, the most mind-numbing thing for me is knowing that I'm going to skate on the sheet of ice where they beat Russia, where they claim the gold medal, where the USA, <laughs> USA chant started. I mean, think about that. That's I'm getting goosebumps right yeah. now just talking. I'm getting chills just talking about it. That is... The ice itself is as historic and iconic as the team. So, uh, you know, remember had like the blue down by the yeah. ends and stuff like that? And it's not blue anymore, unfortunately. But from what I understand, it's not been touched. They upgraded the scoreboard recently. But outside of that, um, you know, I've had the good fortune of kind of becoming friends with Neil Broughton. And he's told me that every year we go back, it's just like another year's gone by and not, not, not a thing has changed. Lockers are, locker rooms are all the same, et cetera, et cetera. So. Do you have, I know it's not, it's not happening until March, but do you have a sense of butterflies and nerves about skating on that ice with those people? Well, I'm, I'm, I don't know if it's good or bad, uh, but when we get there, we have kind of a, we get there on a Monday. I was just giving the itinerary yesterday. We get there on a Monday, we get checked in, we get settled in, get our registration, get our welcome packets, all that kind of stuff. They outfit us with our gear. And then Tuesday morning, you hit the ice. And Tuesday morning is an evaluation, a practice time and an evaluation because there's a draft. <laughs> uh, from what I understand, my liver may get a bigger workout than my legs, <laughs> if you follow my, my drift. Uh, could you be more specific? Uh, <laughs> no, I get your drift. <laughs> yeah, I know you do. Uh, uh, that said, I know how hyper-competitive people that play at the level they did play at, uh, have. And so there's, I, from what I understand, there's a pretty hardcore draft that goes on behind closed doors, which I think is kind of cool because yeah. they don't want anybody to feel bad. Everybody's in a number one pick. Um, but they do a, a draft, I'm assuming, to probably get the teams even and stuff like that. So to answer your question, um, I, I don't know if it's good or bad that there's an evaluation ahead of time. At least it won't be in a game right away. I don't know if it'll be – I've played a lot of hockey, and it's a lot of muscle memory for me. And I'm not trying to paint myself like an ex-NHL or anything like that, but I've played a lot of hockey. Yeah. I mean, so I don't think that I'll be nervous in, in the sense of, you know, not able to do what I do. But, yeah, I mean, the first the – first I mean, I, I know exactly what I'm going to do already. I'm going to step out on the ice. Normally, I stretch right away. This time, I'm going to just take a slow lap, and I'm just yeah. going to take in the rink. Um, and then I think after that, it'll kind of, you know, you'll take in. I'll, I'll definitely take it in in downtime. Like, just look at every nook and cranny of that place and soak it, in, soak it in for what it is. When it's actually game time, I mean, it's, you know, I play enough now and take it seriously enough now where I, you know, you, everything that, you hear players say that, oh, I didn't even hear the crowd. It's just you're focused in. That's the way I, it's the way it is. So I don't think that I'll take it in while I'm playing, but certainly in the downtime, I will be soaking in every second of it. You know, the significance of the miracle on ice, the game itself, uh, can't be overstated, no. I don't think. And it's been talked about, and there have been documentaries and the, the Disney movie about it. I'm just curious what that game and what those Olympics mean to you personally what kind of significance do they have for you 
I was pretty young. Right. I know I, I watched the game. Uh, my parents had bowling that night. We just talked about this the other night because I told my family that I was getting to do this. And <laughs> so we went kind of over it again. And so we were being babysat. But I sat in the basement of the person that was babysitting me and watched the game. And I don't, you know, I, I was, I don't really even remember exactly. I mean, well, I can say it, I guess. I always try to hide my age, but I was about seven. So I obviously had no concept of the impact socially yeah. and, and worldwide. Um, I really honestly didn't even grasp the hockey impact of it. Um, but I mean, just everything I've read and learned since then, it's, you know, Al Michaels call is perfect. This impossible dream comes true. It, 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 you could have played those two teams together a hundred times and Russia probably would have won 99 of them. Right. It was, I mean, well, you know what? Maybe not though, because they figured out how to play them. Um, and that was the thing, you know, I mean, keep in mind 10 days earlier, Russia blew them out 10-3 in an exhibition, but I think they learned a lot from that. I think Herb Brooks was a great coach that really knew how to push buttons, and I think the players knew how to adapt, and they gained confidence. Somehow, some way, they gained some confidence. Um, the, the worldwide social Im- uh, um, impact of it? off the charts. Well, that game was a, a great moment in history. Those Olympics were a great moment in oh, history, and I'm hoping that I can uh, follow up with you once you're there and talk to you a little bit about the experience, and I'm sure our listeners would appreciate hearing about that as well. Uh, and I would love to share it because it's, a, it's a, a, like I said, a really phenomenal uh, opportunity to go do this um, and, and just kind of glean whatever piece of history I can from this. Um, and so, um, you know, I'm happy to talk about it. And again, a huge thanks to the Herb Brooks Foundation. They just do some incredible things for hockey in this state. Um, and, and now they've done something pretty incredible for me, too, which I don't know that I'm even deserving of. Well, a lot of us hearing about this from you are living vicariously through you. So thank you for sharing uh, what, what's exciting about this to you with the rest of us. And I look forward to talking to you about it again in the future. Great. Thanks, Paul. Thank Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. For the first time in 14 years, the tradition of a large-scale ice palace returns to the St. Paul Winter Carnival. MNN's J.W. Cox talked with former Winter Carnival royalty to discuss the excitement around this year's big attraction. Scott, Carnival co-chair Dan Stoltz was not a member of the board in 2004 when the last large-scale ice palace was constructed, but... The one-time King Boreas 2015 knows what he's talking about when it comes to all things Winter Carnival, and he told me it was a no-brainer for them to bring the tradition back for 2018. I, I will tell you that it was this was a year that many of us just felt this is the year to do it. I mean, you've got you've got millions will be descending on the Twin Cities during a Super Bowl time. The the world will be watching on TV, um, and this is St. Paul. You know, this is our pride. This is our heritage. We embrace winter, and this is a very iconic. Uh, visual of that. So we really felt that we had to put something together and uh, we did in a very short period and uh, again we're going to be ready by the 25th of January. Stoltz says the design of the ice castle will be striking. There's going to be uh, six towers and the, the largest one will be seven stories. So it's going to be you know multi-dimensional. It's not going to just be one tower and that's it. There's going to be it's going to be multi-dimensional as well. It's going to be placed in Rice Park in downtown St. Paul kind of between uh, the Ordway and Landmark Center and St. Paul Hotel. And it's going to be right there in the park. It has 4,000 blocks. Each of these blocks weigh up between 500 and 600 pounds. 
And uh, we are expecting that the weight on this uh, ice palace will be about 2 million pounds. The visual effect of the ice palace goes even beyond the shape of the structure, according to Stoltz. I just actually met with the lighting company that's going to be putting uh, spectacular lighting with inside the palace that will be uh, to music. And this thing will be going 24-7 for literally those two and a half weeks during Winter Carnival and during Super Bowl. And it will be a site that everyone should see. And then, honestly, the other thing I just wanted to say is it's going to be totally free. So this is open to the public. The idea of an ice palace this year nearly didn't get off the ground due to a lack of funding. But Stoltz says they've now come a long way on that front. We're about 80% funded, so it's very important. We're really looking to the people of St. Paul, Minneapolis, the Minnesota. And quite frankly, we, uh, we have started a Build-A-Block program. It's on the wintercarnival.com site. For $25, you'll get your own certificate with your name on it and then an individual block number so you can say that you were a part of this. Uh, What's kind of fun, JW, in offering this up about a week and a half ago when we started this Buy a Block um, we have it from all around the United States. We have from Arizona, New York, California, um, all, many people that have been in Minnesota have read about it. Uh, so we're getting not only state attention, but already national attention with this as well. So wintercarnival.com, anybody can buy a block for 25 and we'd love to have them join us. From the start of the build process, Stoltz says it's easy to see just how unique an experience this is for all Minnesotans involved. With 4,000 blocks, 30 people working constantly, trucks bringing, you know, uh, blocks of ice from Spicer, Minnesota, and then the building of it and the complexity of it. They even showed me that when they put a block on top of another block, they actually put ice melt in between each of the blocks so that they actually melt and bond together. But there's strategy, but but it's unique. I mean, building ice castles don't come around all the time. So it's a very, very uh, intensive project. We're super excited to display and show off Minnesota. Scott, once it's done, that completed ice palace will be free and open to the public running from January 25th through February 10th. Thank you, JW. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.